Welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Liz Crow. And yes, podcast listeners, that is the Australian accent of Elizabeth Crow, PhD, who joins us again on the podcast of a, of a gap of too many years. There's been a lot happening for Liz since she was last with us. Tell us what you've been up to, Liz, and what we hope to talk about on this special podcast series. Right. So for those of you who don't know me, I trained as a paediatric intensive care social worker here in Australia. And I would say that my field of expertise used to be around, unfortunately, death, dying, crisis, new diagnosis and accidents involving children and their families. As a result of that, I became very interested in the well-being of healthcare professionals and did something to destroy my own well-being, undertaking a PhD while working full time. I have subsequently finished that PhD and engaged in a number of research projects as well around the implications for healthcare professionals following COVID-19, ethical climates, the impact of moral distress on critical care workers, just to name a few. And so the goal is we're going to have a deep dive into actually what is well-being and burnout and what can we practically do about it. So let's get straight on with our first episode where we're going to focus on burnout itself. And we want to take a bit more of a scientific approach to all this. There's a lot about well-being out there. There's a lot about burnout. These terms get passed around and used seemingly interchangeably. But this is where we're going to try and give you what we know about burnout, how it's measured and what it actually means. So Liz, let's start with a very simple, straightforward question of what is burnout? Well, I'd love to give you a very simple, straightforward answer, but I would be lying. Investigating burnout was a major part of my PhD. And what I found was that there is 15,000, as a conservative guess, peer-reviewed articles on burnout, and about 50,000, as in five zero, published articles on burnout. So that's the grey literature, the opinion pieces, etc. The latest studies show that there's about 146 current definitions about burnout. And I guess what I think is, is that burnout's just become this ubiquitous term that is used to describe anything around work or life that is bothering people. And the problem with that is, is that When burnout represents everything, it kind of means nothing. And it means that we can't target any specific interventions to cure something when we don't really know what it is that we're talking about. So how would we measure burnout by the terms that we're talking about? That that state of feeling completely emotionally exhausted. What is the way in which we can get an objective measure of whether people are becoming burned out or at risk of burnout? So academically, the gold standard is the Maslach burnout inventory. Probably about 80 to 85% of all studies that have been done on burnout use this inventory. There's about 20 to 25 other tools that you can use, and some of them are very academically sound. However, most of them use the Maslach Burnout Inventory. Now, that inventory, what it does, it's 22 items. It's a cross-sectional survey that you do usually as a one-off. And what that measures is emotional exhaustion, which is kind of like how exhausted are you by your current role? Depersonalization or cynicism, which in current terms, lots of people are kind of using it as a crisis of meaning. That's where you just become detached from what it is that you're doing. And they're the people who in meetings are often the ones like, no, we're not going to try that. We tried it in 1998 and it didn't work then and it won't work now. You know, where they're quite pessimistic or cynical about everything that's going on. 
And the third dimension is personal accomplishment. Do you have a sense of efficacy around what you're doing? Like, do you actually feel like, okay, I'm a nurse in emergency department and I can actually see the benefits of what I'm doing every day? That's the the most common tool about how we measure it. The problem with that is that that tool came out in about 1996. And what Maslach and Michael who are the two people who actually invented the tool, have been saying very clearly since 2016, please stop using this tool to measure or diagnose individuals. That wasn't the goal. The goal was that this tool was meant to be used so that systems such as a hospital, such as an emergency department or an ICU, could have a look at how their employees were tracking And then we could do something systematically about it. So really, the original tool was measuring like, if our staff are exhausted, if they've got this emotional exhaustion, they don't have enough resources. That's a flag for the system to do anything. If people are really sceptical, is that because they feel completely disconnected from their executive? What do we need to do as leaders to get more on the ground so that that we're able to be heard? And if people just feel completely inefficient, like what they're doing has no value, then what can the system do about that? But unfortunately, that's not the way the tool's used. So I think that highlights a really important thing right off the bat, doesn't it? That what you're saying here is, is that the Maslach inventory is about system issues. It's not an individual thing. So if I go off and do the Maslach burnout inventory now and I score really highly on it, that's not me diagnosing myself with burnout. I better go to the GP and get some treatment. It's not about me as a person. It's about the situation I find myself in. That's exactly right. That's that's what the tool was meant for. And uh, Maslach last year wrote a piece in the Harvard Business Review saying that currently how the tool is being used is unethical and inaccurate. And she was calling that if we really want to understand how our healthcare professionals or anyone's doing in an organisation, we probably need to use something more than a one-off tool because you'll know yourself, Ian, if you have just come off a series of nights and I ran this tool with you, it may be completely different than if you've just come back from six weeks holiday on a beach. Scores are going to be different because it's a snapshot based on context of what's going on in the moment and also that actually we need some more qualitative data if we're actually going to understand why people feel the way they do and do they have any ideas about how they got there or how they could get themselves out of that kind of sense of feeling. So anytime we see an article that says x percent of people are burning out or at risk of burnout. I'm not sure if burnout is a verb. Can you be burning out? I suppose you can. What is the actual number? When you looked at this as part of your PhD, we talk about burnout as if it's everywhere. Everybody has it. When you do the tool itself in the correct way, what numbers of our staff, I know yours was focused on pediatric intensive care. What what sort of proportion will hit those warning signs on a Maslach burnout inventory? Is it 90% of people who are burning out or is it fewer than that? So if you look at the meta-analysis around critical care, what they'll say, first of all, is that so many of the studies were done incorrectly. So when Maslach first introduces and subsequently when she's added parts to this survey, she said that you can't just look at one score, which is the bulk of what all papers do. They look at emotional exhaustion, which is often can be high, and they say people have burnout, whereas she's saying, "Uh uh-uh, that's actually just exhaustion. And exhaustion on its own is exhaustion. It is not burnout. So if we look at the prevalence 
across all these meta-analysis, and even if you just Google systematic reviews on burnout, you'll find about 50 articles where people have done systematic reviews on particular populations within health. The prevalence, when you look at it across the broad and you look at it systematically and you look at who actually used the tools correctly, the prevalence is between 0% and about 89%. Now, I didn't do very well at mathematics at school, but that's a very large range. And so let's let's dig deeper into that. Why is it such a large range? Why is it in some studies it's 90% of burning out and in others it's zero? Surely this tool isn't fit for purpose if it's not giving us the results that we can compare. Well, I don't think it is fit for purpose and neither does Christine Maslach who invented it. But I guess the thing is, is that if it's actually a tool measuring systematic issues, Then if you work in a unit where you're happy, where you're well-resourced, where you feel like your leadership is engaged, you feel close to your team, you feel like you're making a difference in what you do, then you're not going to score burnout. If you are working in a unit or a ward where it's every person for themselves, your boss is a bully, you don't have anywhere near the resources for what you need to do, you don't feel like you're getting paid at a rate, no one acknowledges your work, then your burnout scores are potentially through the roof because it's a system thing. We've been sold this big thing that really we've all got burnout because we're not doing enough mindfulness and that's actually a load of waffle. Let's dig deeper into those three elements of the burnout score that we've talked about because I think it might be worth just getting your handle on what those mean. Now, you've mentioned a little bit about emotional exhaustion. There's times in my personal life I felt emotionally exhausted. What, how does that reflect when you're measuring burnout in a healthcare professional population? What does it mean to, to us? What it's supposed to mean is it's kind of correlated with stress and it refers to your psychological depletion, like how, how much have you got in the tank? When you've got a loss of energy, it's usually multifactorial. So if we look at COVID, for example, when you look at emotional exhaustion about that, a large part of it was the volume of patients that you had, um, that people actually got tired of only seeing COVID and they were concerned about other patient cohorts. Our studies felt that it was also because people were so stressed about taking COVID home and giving it to their family and friends. People were had none of the their usual kind of resources to tap into. Someone like me, I use the gym and exercise as a big part of coping. If I couldn't go to the gym and I wasn't allowed out of my house, I've still got this big volume of work to do and my normal coping strategy is gone. So we would expect emotional exhaustion to be through the roof. I would expect working parents who've got young kids and not getting enough sleep and then having to pull a 12-hour shift would be having much higher rates of emotional exhaustion than someone who's older like me and kids are finally out of school and can kind of do a little bit more what they like with their lives. I think what I'm hearing is is emotional exhaustion is factors that are at work but can be affected by at home. When is emotional exhaustion in the burnout sense different to goodness, my life is busy and I feel like I don't have enough downtime? When does that normal life, if you like, tick over into something that you could describe as perhaps pathological? Uh, I don't think I can answer that, to be honest, because if you come and talk to me last year, I was doing my PhD, I was working full time during COVID, 
We had a massive COVID study with that. We were doing interviews, writing papers for every single night, podcasting three times a week. My kids were cranky. My son was in year 12 trying to do his final year of school in amongst the pandemic. You know, I stretched as tight as I could be, but I was kind of energized by it as well. Whereas put someone else in that spot and they might have just thought, I'm going to snap like a little rubber band. This is the complexity around well-being. Something that terrifies the pants out of you, that exhausts you, I might find quite exhilarating and fun, interesting, stimulating. We can't say this is the thing that harms and this is the thing that enables well-being because if someone said to me crocheting, or knitting really floats my boat and it's the thing that helps take all the stress out of my life. Like I'd rather stab myself in the eye with a knitting needle. It's not one cup fits all. So as it's not one size fits all, it means for me that emotional exhaustion, some people who work in the emergency department or PIC or critical care thrive on the different aspects that they get from their work. So I like being busy at work. I find it really difficult when there's nothing much going on. And I quite enjoy the chaos that surrounds me. So I've chosen quite well for my career. How do we help people who score high on this emotional exhaustion, partly because they've ended up in a situation that doesn't suit them, that isn't fitting for their personality, isn't fitting for what gives them those things that keep you going. Your life sounds so hectic. I think I I would burst like a balloon. What do we do to acknowledge that for some people, they're either in the wrong job or we need to do different things to help them cope with the job they're doing? If someone finds themselves in a career that's not working for them, that's not burnout. (laughs) That's like, oh, whoops, like I found myself in a place that I don't actually enjoy. That's okay. That doesn't mean that you've got no skill sets. There could be a million things that you could do that would still be helpful, wonderful, beneficial, not just to the world, but to you. This is the problem. When burnout is used as this ubiquitous term that means everything, we can't dig deep to actually work out what's going on. That's quite separate from the fact that I think lots of healthcare professionals are simply exhausted. I do believe that systematically health has survived for a very long time on the goodwill of others. I would say that 50% of all my work across my whole career, I've done for free with no payment after hours in my own time. I don't begrudge that because I consciously have made a decision around that and I feel fine about it. I don't think that's how everyone wants to work and neither should they. This is why I keep saying there's this tightrope between saying, We probably need a bit of a revolution in health to say, particularly for our nursing staff, pay them for their hours, pay them properly, look after them, make sure that all healthcare professionals have the resources that they need to do for the job. Equally, if you find yourself in a job that isn't working for you because you don't like the pace, you don't like the uncertainty, you find the whole thing really psychologically distressing, that's okay. There may be other parts of health that you can work in and have a completely different experience, or maybe there's a different occupation for you, but that's not necessarily burnout. So that's the emotional exhaustion aspect. And I think we've covered quite nicely there, the difference between I'm really tired and very, very busy versus 
I feel utterly emotionally exhausted by the work that I do. And one of the challenges we'll talk about later in the series is how we can help people who end up working in certain roles who immediately feel exhausted. We have people rotating through emergency departments who they do it as part of a rotation as wanting to be a psychiatrist or a dermatologist. But we expect the same from them as we do from those who really thrive on that environment. So we will talk about how to help with that. That's one part of burnout. You then said the second part is depersonalization. What does that mean? I think depersonalization is this kind of crisis of, of meaning, a loss of ability to live by your personal values. It's when people become cynical and irritable because they feel like the job's kind of not going where they need it to go, or it doesn't matter how hard you work or what you try to do, you're not going to be able to achieve it because simply there's not the resources, there's not the innovation, there's not the opportunity to change things. And this is where people can often feel a concern that they're not as engaged with patients or their colleagues as they need to be. And what brings that about, do you think? And explain a bit more what you mean about they're not as engaged as they need to be. Because I must admit, I've got to a place now where I see my work as I go in, I do my job and I go home and I try and engage as much as when I'm there. I'm certainly not burnt out. I enjoy my work, but I don't see it as it's that thing where people describe their work as, as their family or work-life balance. For me, it's still a job, but I don't think that means I've depersonalized it, does it? No, absolutely not. It means that you've probably put some good boundaries around things where that when you're at work, you're immersed in it, you want to give it your best, you want your patients and your colleagues to have a good experience about working with you. The kind of opposite to that is this depersonalization where it doesn't matter what I do. I don't feel connected. I don't feel like I've got the opportunity to create change. You feel very cynical about, you know, when your executives send down the values of the day or when a boss says to you, you know, if I can do anything, just let me know. However, at the same time, doesn't let you have a break, doesn't, uh, doesn't check in on a regular basis. It's that whole level of cynicism where, I think any of us who've worked in a healthcare system for long enough, every eight years they change the IT system and it's a debacle for 18 months, we just get settled and then they change it again. That's that kind of learned cynicism of like, don't get attached to anything, they'll they'll change this system again. Anyone who works in a large bureaucracy has a level of that. I guess when depersonalization becomes a bigger problem is when you don't really care about what's happening for your colleagues and patients. You're just doing what you have to do rather than um, making a connection. I think I've got an idea about how I might be able to spot a colleague who's got emotional exhaustion in some ways, because I guess there are physical manifestations of people who are just exhausted and tired. And you might be able to just ask them a bit about what's going on in their lives to get an idea. But without doing a Maslach burnout inventory, how can you tell if a colleague is becoming depersonalized? When do the alarm bells ring when you see that in a colleague? I think depersonalization can almost present a little bit like compassion fatigue. You know, when people are like, oh God, you know, person in bed 10, such a whinger. I've given them some fentanyl and they're still carrying on. How bad can the pain be? People just stop seeing our patients as human beings and they start seeing them as the bronchitis in bed for the degloving from the MBA in bed to, you know, where they, they're doing what they have to, but there is no connection. They're also the pers- people in the meetings who are like, nothing's going to change. I'm not coming. I'm not coming to the Christmas party because 
everyone's a bit of a tool and I don't care about them. They never have anything that kind of energizes them or interests them. The good thing about burnout, even though it's a systemic thing, what we know about burnout is I do think it's really recoverable. Maybe people just need a holiday or a break, or maybe people need a change in job or to take their long service or to go and do a project, or maybe people have given a wonderful service to health and it's time to do something else. So we've talked about the first two parts, emotional exhaustion and depersonalization. And just want to add in here that I have to be honest that Christmas parties strike fear into my heart. I've done (laughs) many of them. Uh, And I think the idea of not wanting to go to a Christmas party doesn't mean you're burnt out. It may just mean that that you're a normal human being. Or you're an introvert and you could think of nothing worse. Absolutely. Now, tell us about the third part of that burnout inventory. So the third part is personal accomplishment. And it basically means where people have a concern that they have no sense of efficacy around what they're doing and they've got no competence in their work. And I think this can happen in a system where people are just working flat out. So say you're in the emergency department and I know you guys have a rule, you're supposed to see people within four hours and you haven't had a break, you haven't had a drink of water, you haven't been to the toilet and you still know there's ambulances ramped out and there's people in the hallways everywhere and you just think, you know what, this is pointless. It doesn't matter how hard I work, I'm not going to clear the board. When people have that sense that it doesn't matter what they do, they can't make a difference. That's kind of a lack of personal accomplishment. And when you look at personal accomplishment in the emergency department, does this mean you have to be a leader and innovative and and changing stuff all the time? Or are there more subtle things that you can do that give you that fulfillment of, I think what we're going to talk about is meaning making, we'll talk about later in the series. But for me, I have to say the bit I enjoy most is talking to patients and doing the little things. I quite like it when they need another blanket and I can get them a blanket. And and those little things that really matter, that, that helps me maintain a connection Are there other things that little bits that people can do within the system to try and prevent that that you're talking about? Yeah, I work in a really big adult hospital now. We have 7,000 staff. We're the biggest hospital in the Southern Hemisphere. And we've been in the media for all the wrong things of late, which is a great shame because we do a lot of great things and, of course, never reported by the media. And I remember talking to them about when we had all this ambulance ramping and, you know, the TV crews were outside And someone said, you know, it's just so demoralizing because it doesn't matter how hard we work, we're not going to be able to clear the ambulances. And I said, you know what, can you try and change your mindset about those systemic things you can't do anything about? But every single patient and every colleague you come into contact with tonight, if you can think, I'm going to make a difference to this person, I'm going to make this person feel like they're the only person in the department. And people said when they can do that, actually they enjoy work so much better because they know that there's no expectation they're going to clear the hallways, but they have an expectation of themselves that everyone who works with them will have a joyful experience of that. They'll be helpful, friendly, interested. And then every patient they come into contact with, they'll get a level of compassion, interest, concern. And when it gets really bad, when it's just tiring and it's late in your shift, other little things that people can do to remind themselves that these are human beings we're talking about. Because I think you're right in that the depersonalization that we mentioned before and and that idea of the person in bed too, 
what does that require? A bit of self-talk, a little bit of taking two minutes to remind yourself or or is there something in the system we can do to try and remind people that this is this is human beings and families and, and patients? I really think this probably comes down to an individual thing. That's my personal opinion. But I think it's about us saying, wow, it's three in the morning and something has made, this person's earache is so bad. They got out of bed, drove across town and presented to us. We need to do something to alleviate that. You know, it may not be the, the most skillful thing you'll do that night, but something has prompted this person. And if you've ever had a bad earache yourself, you know it can be excruciatingly painful. So how can we alleviate that? And sometimes people even just show up in our emergency department because they're frightened. They need some reassurance. Doctors and nurses remain some of the most trusted occupations in the world. So what a gift we can give to people when we can just reassure them that they're okay, we can make them feel safe and warm and as pain-free as possible. And sometimes when we just sit and listen to people and we engage, they'll get back out our doors much faster than if we try and diminish or say that, you know, what they're here for is is unhelpful and blocking the wards, etc. I always start my shift reminding myself that no one really wants to be in an emergency department. There are a few people who do, but those few people are often having the most sad and tragic lives you can possibly imagine. So that instinct of, oh my goodness, this person's here again. The next thought is always, but I wouldn't want to be them. That's yeah. it's pretty, pretty rough. From a personal experience, I, w- I was ill once. I had viral meningitis, it turned out. This is a good few years ago. And I went to my local hospital. And the one thing I remember is that I was shivering and shaking. I had a fever. I was, I was cold but hot. And, and I went to have an x-ray, I think. And, and the radiographer pulled the blanket over my feet. And from mm-hmm. the three days I was in hospital, and remember, I was a consultant in hospital. So I, I got a lot of attention. I had lots of scans. The one bit of kindness I remember, the radiographer putting that blanket over my feet, made a real difference to me. And and so metaphorically, I try and put the blanket over somebody's feet on every shift. And that really helps me remember and stay connected to what I'm doing. And look, I think that sits at the core of what we're talking about, is that if we can stay connected to our patients and to our colleagues, life definitely won't be perfect. You know, like everybody is stressed. Everyone has junior workforces. Everyone doesn't have enough workforce. Our acuity is going up. So are our numbers and yet our resources in hospitals aren't. But if we can remain connected as human beings, it will be protective for our for our general well-being. So we've discussed about burnout. We've talked about Maslach burnout inventory and how we might measure it. We've talked about those three aspects that make out that burnout inventory. And we've also said really that burnout is a systematic problem, not necessarily a personal problem, although how we live our lives and how we see the world can affect whether or not we're at risk of burnout within those system problems. I think we mentioned right at the very beginning that burnout isn't a diagnosis. But clearly it does affect people's psychology and, and their and their mental health, their well-being psychologically. Where does burnout fit with things like depression and other psychological illnesses? Do you have to be depressed to be burnt out? And if you're burnt out, does that mean you are depressed? No, look, there is a big argument about this in the actual literature about whether burnout is depression or whether you can have burnout and not have depression. Certainly there are features of burnout that do present exactly like depression. I guess what I'm talking about burnout, how other people use it, not what I think of it as a systematic issue. But certainly, you know, people talk about feeling numb to the world, not being able to experience the world as 
colourful and hopeful and, and full of meaning, but everything becomes overwhelming, stripped of energy, difficult to even do some of day-to-day functions. I personally think that burnout is very different to depression because you can um, have depression and not be employed. You can have depression as secondary to a major life event, whereas burnout is meant to be solely associated with an occupational stress, with occupational concern. And certainly that that's a very different feature to depression. Can burnout in the way that society uses it tips into depression? Yes, it can. But I think that they're two completely different concepts and something that we need to keep as quite separate. There is an obvious focus here on organisational and structural issues. Are there things that organisations can do and things that we can do as leaders within organisations? Maslach and Lita, I, you know, I've got to hand it to these guys. They've really hung in there with these academics and pushed back. And so they have looked at all the literature and have said that there are six risk factors where it comes to organisations, things that people need to be aware of. And the first one is an excessive workload. If people do not have the resources, personal or systematic, to address, you know, to do their job, of course, it's going to over time wear them down. And that can include things like workload inefficiencies, time pressures, increased bureaucratic and administrative demands, distractions from patient care, poorly designed health systems, poorly designed IT systems. All of these things can contribute to people feeling like an excessive workload. The second is when people feel like they've got a lack of control and autonomy. So we know from a well-being point of view, everybody needs a sense of agency. And what we know is that control and autonomy in a big bureaucracy like a hospital can really wear at people. If people feel micromanaged, if people feel like numbers or finances have become more important than their patients, This is around role conflict, control of time management. If we don't offer work flexibility, again, these are prime indicators for systemic burnout. The third is recognition and rewards. Everybody, everybody, doesn't matter what level they work at, wants to be seen, wants to be appreciated and recognised for the job that they're doing. While people, of course, want to be remunerated fairly and have a level of job security, this goes beyond that. This is about really being able to see your staff and know what they're doing. And I guess from a leadership point of view, you should never ask anything of your staff that you can't do or wouldn't be prepared to do yourself. The next is social support. If people have destructive relationships at work, if people work in an environment where there's distrust, no psychological safety, there's constant conflict, you're so much more vulnerable to being exposed or or having experiences of burnout. Poor team collaboration, poor communication, passive aggressiveness, all of these things wear individuals down. And people leave people, you know, often in organisations, people uh, vote with their feet. So I think being able to offer social support. Number five is fairness and transparency. People want to know that jobs, rosters, opportunities for professional development 
are equal across the board. If you're doing the roster, you cannot give your best friend all their weekends off. That affects the entire system. Every one of your colleagues will be impacted by that. So this idea of fairness and transparency is important. And last, but definitely not least, is values. That people's values, their ideals and motivations determine their priorities and attract people to their place of employment. When I decided to leave paediatrics, which was a huge decision to me, it was because the deputy executive director of the hospital where I went to work said to me, we want someone with your values. And it had been such a long time since I'd had anyone in an organization even ask me about my values. Values are important. These are intrinsic to who we are. When we experience value conflict, we become disengaged, dissatisfied, and it will fit under this kind of huge umbrella of a term called burnout. There's a lot to take in there and many parts of that we'll cover further on in the series. So I think that rounds up our first episode where we're talking about burnout, what burnout actually is, those three aspects we've mentioned, the system aspects that we've been talking about. And that gives us a background to build upon for the next episodes in our series where we're going to talk more about what the relationship is between burnout and well-being. But for now, Liz, I think that's the perfect background into what burnout is, how it's measured, how we may be able to spot it in our colleagues, and then some of the things that we may be able to do to manage it. And we will talk more about those as we go on. So thank you so much for listening to episode one of this special series on well-being, burnout, and all those things with Dr. Liz Crow. We'll see you again soon for episode two.